Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Bally Sports Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. Very, 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 very excited about today's episode. We have a couple of fun interviews coming at you guys. First, it's opening day. So we're talking Major League Baseball with the Marlins TV play-by-play voice, Paul Severino. He's been here at Bally Sports now for five seasons. This is his fifth year covering the Miami Marlins on a day-to-day basis. And I'm super excited to talk with him a bit about his career and also previewing what should be a very eventful Miami Marlins season. He's one of the first people I ever spoke to about being a guest on this show. So I couldn't be more excited to have him and honored that he spent the time with us. And our second interview today, we'll be talking about those Miami Heat who have now clinched the number one one seed in the Eastern Conference. Tony Fiorentino joins me to break things down, how they've performed on their five-game win streak, a couple of key factors as they head toward the playoffs. So without further ado, let's start getting into this. The first conversation you'll hear right now is with Paul Severino. So thank you to Paul Severino for joining us here on Miami Miked Up for the first time. One of the people who I spoke to about being a guest probably as early on in the process as existed with this show. So I'm super excited to have him on here. Paul, thank you for taking the time right before opening day uh, to join us here on the show. Yeah, you're. Uh, I'm. I'm glad to be here. It's. Uh, it's been a while, but I haven't been relevant for you yet. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe. I, maybe I'm not even relevant now. I'm just the first person to say yes. But I'm happy to be here. But it's. My yeah. Pleasure. Okay. First person to say yes. Get out of here, Mr. Play by Play Man of the Marlins, right here. He's going to be there every single day. Before we get into actually what it is that you're doing um, this season and a little bit about your path, I do have to ask you: What is something outside of the workplace that has brought you joy recently? Wow, that's a good one. Um, it's it's uh, it might be a little corny, but um, we've all been down that road, right? So uh, we got a new puppy in mid December. So hey. that has been yeah. So that's been uh, what that's is his been, or her it, name? What type his, of dog? His, yeah, his name is Enzo, and it's uh, it's a Boston Terrier. Um, he, we got him at uh, at eight weeks old, so he's been through a lot of stages already, uh, biting and uh, body training, <laughs> and uh, not sleeping all night. So uh, I can say this as someone who has also had a child and an, and and a newborn. It's like having a newborn. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we we got Enzo in December. We got him uh, about three months after our our old dog had unfortunately passed away in September. Homer. Um, was also Boston Terrier. So um, as as corny as it might sound, it's nice to have a little a little black and white uh, pup running around the house again. It feels uh, it, it feels right for our family. So that honestly, I'm not even kidding, has taken up a lot of our time because uh, I speak to you from San Francisco, which means right. that uh, the my lovely uh, wife is home and uh, taking care of uh, everything while I <laughs> sit here and, and watch baseball. So. Um, so it, it, it tried to lay some groundwork before I left, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's that it's, um, we have in my household, number one, no children and also a cat, which is a little more low maintenance. And even, <laughs> even the cat, uh, can be high maintenance given, given the, uh, the right scenario swallow, <laughs> swallowed a string, which apparently can be <laughs> fatal to cats who knew, right? I mean, these are the types of things that you have to deal with. So I, oh. you know, little, little training days for ultimately uh, parenthood someday, I guess, but uh, ha- happy yeah. to hear about the new pup. And, um, yeah. I guess, uh, Enzo's probably very excited for this baseball season, getting to spend more time with mom. So, yeah. uh, a little, little solo time, right. You know, and, uh, away from dad. Uh, but, uh, as this baseball season does start, I do want to get a little bit into actually your path to getting down here, Paul, because I think it's really interesting and it, and it shows sort of a, a passion for the game. I think that's probably existed since a young age. So um, we'll start a little bit with that first. I, so looking everything up, I've never actually spoken to you about this, but you're from Bristol, Connecticut which yeah. is the home yeah. of ESPN, which had to yeah. be really interesting growing up. Um, yeah, it was. And and if I'm correct, you also grew up a Yankees fan. That um, is, those are two correct, uh, correct <laughs> takes there, yes. Two, two, two correct statements. So that being said, I imagine you were probably a, kind of a diehard baseball fan from youth, no? And, and yeah. if so, what drew you to the game as a kid? 
Uh, I can't come up with a with a singular moment uh, right, that that right. drew me to baseball. All I can say is that um, my my dad was a Yankee fan, so for me it kind of started with that. And his dad, my grandfather, was also a Yankee fan, so much so um, that when uh, I called him Poppy, so when my Poppy was uh, was having Paul Senior, he decided he was going to name him after his favorite Yankee, Joe Paul DiMaggio. So my dad was Paul. And then I, I'm obviously Paul Jr., right. um, but I was born on the fifth was Joe DiMaggio's number. So it was one of those things where, um, you know, I just kind of uh, as as growing up, the, the I had a good run as a Yankee fan, you know, back in the late 90s. Um, and uh, it's the tide has turned. But I for a long time, I was on I was on the good side of things. But my dad's brothers and sister um, were all Red Sox fans. So we, we had bragging rights for a little while. It's turned upside down yeah. a little bit, but um, but it's it, it's all it's all been in good fun. But um, but yeah, you know, it was uh, it was great. You know, I think it's it's what um, is especially over these last couple of seasons or this last season, I should say, 2021, because we didn't have it in 2020, um, being able to see parents and kids or aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces and all that kind of stuff, just family in the ballpark, enjoying uh, enjoying something which uh, obviously together, which just so happens to be baseball. So, um, you know, it's great that we get to capture those moments along the way, uh, a, a few, well, 162, a few thousand times a year. So. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and baseball is such a family game in that way. It sounds like it was sort of passed down from birth for you as it was for me, as it was for a number of people, especially who have any sort of ties to family being in the Northeast and New York in particular. Um, I, I will say, I'm sure at some point there was the dream of, I want to be a major leaguer. So when did that dream then turn into, I want to talk about major leaguers? Uh, Was sports television something that was a goal from from a relatively young age? Or was that something, you know, once you got to college or something like that, that became a focus for you? I will say this. There's uh, there's probably a very short list of things that I've worked hard for in my life. Um, I try to be a good husband and father. So I'll group that together. Um, Try to be a good son, too. So I'll group that in that same and 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 try to be good at my career right um but when it came to schoolwork forget it no um and now don't tell my son that because all we're trying to hammer <laughs> home at, at home is do work do do good work in school but um right. but yeah you know i i think i was um as i still am very much so dumb and naive uh, when i was young you know I, i'd watch sports i just i don't again i don't know exactly when it started but i i liked watching sports and you you watch the games and you hear the voices on tv and i never really pieced it together that someone either went to school for it or was hired for the job of of speaking on television right and um i was probably nine ten ish years old somewhere in there um and i had uh had a family friend who was a few years older and was in high school and um, and I, you know, I just asked me, hey, you know, what are you working on? What are you going to go to college for everything else? And he said communications. And I said, well, what the heck is communications? He's like, well, you know, it'd be like a broadcaster or something like that. And I was like, back up a second. What are you talking about? What's a, what's a broadcaster? What are these what do these clowns do exactly? And he's like, <laughs> well, you know, you watch these sporting events and they're the people that are that are talking the play by play announcers. I was like, so you're saying this is a job and be Amazing. these people are at sporting events all day, every day. And they just talk about what they see. And he goes, uh, yeah, doofus. That's exactly how it works. I said, oh, all right. Well, that, the communications. Okay, good. Great. Yep. So I think it just kind of started there. And then, um, you know, being in Connecticut, but being uh, close to New York, um, my my dad was obviously, like I said, was a big sports fan too. So we'd always, anytime we'd be in the car or whatever, go to work with him for the day or whatever it was, we'd listen to WFAN. And uh, Mike and the Mad Dog was the was the that was the great show then. Um, right. And and it just and again, it was another one of those examples of not really piecing it all together, but just hearing these two guys um, chit chat and talk about sports. And mm-hmm. and every day was I was like, I, I think I could do something like that, maybe kind of sort of um, and, and probably like a lot of kids. Um, as these athletes do, you know, they practice their craft and they're, they're hitting their walk-off home runs and everything else. And, you know, backyard wiffle ball where it's the bottom of the ninth, I was putting on a stupid headset with a microphone and, and watching a game and, and doing play by play, you know, like I was, 
I was, I was that kid and, um, you know, had opportunities along the way to do just things in front of the camera, whether it was, um, you know, morning news in high school or, uh, you know, I did five internships during and, and just after college. And then, you know, it mentioned the time at ESPN and MLB network before ultimately getting here. So, um, again, it's, it's not, uh, at, when I got the job, my uncle, uh, Vinny had told me, you know, he said he, he couldn't believe it. And I, he goes, you understand that there's 750 major leaguers and only 35 of you guys. And I said, uh, wow, it's interesting. You put it that way. Yep. So, yeah. Um, so, but, but again, that, 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 that drive and that focus, um, which probably got me into some trouble along the way of, of not wanting to take that, that extra hard math class in, in college, I'd rather do an extra broadcasting course or whatever it was. But, um, but that drive and that singular focus got me to, to where I am, which again, is not any dissimilar to, to what the athletes deal with. And, uh, and frankly, what the athletes families have to deal with as well. You know, there's a lot I, I work hard I and mean, you work hard for all this other stuff, but there's so many people um, that are behind the scenes that, that, that support you, that sacrifice for you, um, you know, that, uh, that, that make it possible well beyond uh, just your, your, your given talent for a, some, for a certain something. Certainly. Uh, I would also argue that uh, your willingness to not take those math classes and do a couple of extra broadcasts has probably worked out all right. You know, as as your uncle would suggest, one of the 30 major league broadcasters. And, you know, actually, that 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 leads me to actually two different questions. So you mentioned that you didn't really know what a broadcaster was or, you know, sports media being a thing. And yet we just mentioned it. You were growing up in Bristol, Connecticut at the headquarters of ESPN. So how did those two things not necessarily compute or was it just something that was that was part of life? I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of growing up near everything that's going on there or right. was it just not a part of conversation no no it was i think um i might have actually been younger because now that i think of it so maybe i was seven or eight right sure so you're, the world is floating around you have no idea what the heck is going on sure, so i just sure. didn't, didn't piece it all together but probably by the time i was 10 or 11 years old um you know my, my mom worked at a daycare and in the summers uh it, i couldn't stay home by myself and she had to work so i would go to the the, the older kids in, in the daycare would have a summer camp and a lot of times every year at least once we would go tour espn which how cool from the daycare was literally down the street so um and i would drive by maybe you've seen shots or or the folks that are watching and listening have seen shots of uh the, the famous um satellite dishes outside mm -hmm. of espn like i drove by those all the time so it, it not to sound full of myself, but I was never really intimidated by it because it was always the TV station down the street, you know, yeah. um, and, and, and we'd always go tour ESPN. And I remember, um, you know, walking in the studios and looking around, we'd, we'd tour the CBS affiliate in, in, um, in Hartford as well. So being inside the studios and see how it works. And, you know, we, we bumped in one time to Stuart Scott in the hallway and oh. he gave us a few minutes. Um, there was a, there was a, a little league awards banquet that that reese davis spoke at How you know cool. like before reese davis was right. at again but he wasn't you know he was you know he probably drew the short straw of having to do the little league <laughs> banquet right but right. uh you know but uh but still it was i i was i was smelling some of that same air and mm -hmm. then when it came time it was cool i mean don't get me wrong it was it was uh it was an honor and it was a privilege and uh and it was nearly impossible to have gotten the job that I got. But then, you know, I, I walked around, there was a small part of me saying, you've been here before, How cool. you've done this. And it, it was, again, I, I liken it to, to pro athletes. I mean, you see a lot of these second generation kids who have been in the clubhouses mm -hmm. before, and it, it's not that they've seen 99 miles an hour from Jacob deGrom, but, but they've, but they've seen some of it and they've seen enough of, of the other stuff to be able to focus on on the task at hand because some of those other things are not new to them um now if you're going to ask me the first time i did uh, espn news or sports center if i was nervous you're darn right right you're yeah darn well, right. I, that was that was, <laughs> where where I was gonna window. go right because well i would think that 
first joining in would be something that, okay, there's a level of comfort here. There's lack of a barrier to entry. The most extreme example being like Joe Buck to Jack Buck, right? Like growing up around those broadcasts eliminates all of, of the fear and the aura. And even, you know, just as someone who was now in the last number of years started to cover sports, right? In the last five years, I've looked at it and gone five years ago. There are certain guys who I would have stood next to and been nervous. And now I crack jokes to them. Right. Like right. that. that's the way that the dynamics change and you get less intimidated by sport and spectacle and TV right. and spectacle and all those things. But you started ESPN and you work your way through to, to multiple different networks. You did work with MLB Network and NHL Network and you did in studio shows with them, but also play by play. Right. And so I'm intrigued. What was it that drew you to wanting to do play-by-play every day for a particular team in Major League Baseball? You were doing sort of the general, hey, I'm covering all of Major League Baseball. I'm interchanging play-by-play and and studio work. So what, what about this job enticed you so much and makes you love it enough to where you said, yeah, that's the thing I want to do next? It, it, it goes back to, um, again, timing is kind of everything, right? So if, again, it, my little world of sports, our little world of sports, you, you, you hope that you'll have your favorite team be good and you can enjoy some of those great moments, right? And for me, it was wheelhouse, man. It was 13 years old, 1996, and the Yankees are winning a World Series. So I was, I was old enough to understand the game enough to be uh, in, involved in it. I was still playing at that time and whatever I was in seventh or eighth grade at that time. Um, so I was still playing, uh, again, you understand the game enough to, to be invested in the ups and the downs of it. And, um, you know, I, I certainly, I, I don't forget watching games with my dad and going to games with my dad and all that kind of stuff. So when they were, when they were good, you never wanted to miss a pitch. You never don't miss a game. So I was always, watching games or listening to games. And and when there are those great moments, you know, I'll never hit a walk-off home run, but I'll call one. Like that's what I heard. And and again, I was getting close to the end of my baseball career. I could see that coming. So I was like, what's next? And it was like, I'll never hit that walk home, but I might call one. Um, And how the call sometimes can be remembered as much as the play itself and what an honor and a privilege that is. Um, so don't screw that up, by the way. Um, but but so it was, it was it was kind of all of that stuff, and and I just um, yeah, it, that's that's kind of where it began for me. Was uh, was like, all right, I think I can, I think I can do this because uh, I, I I couldn't see myself doing anything else really. Um, you know, I hate to make myself sound too stupid, but I don't know if I'm qualified for anything else. Nothing else could like hold my attention long enough to, to learn or master another craft. You know, um, my wife doesn't ask me to paint walls. I can't do it at home. Like I'm just not good. It ends up streaky. Like I'm just there. I'm not qualified for much else. I'm barely qualified for this for goodness sakes. But like, you know, so it was, it was just the one thing that could kind of hold my attention. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that was, when I'm, when I was, you know, playing out my life, I think visualization is a, is a huge thing yeah. when I was planning it out and, and getting out of college and, you know, back then I'm not that old, but back then it was a little bit more of a line of delineation of yeah. you go the play by play route or the studio route. Now it's kind of merged a little bit more. Um, but I went the studio route one because uh, ESPN had offered me a job. So I was like, okay, well, work <laughs> is cool. So I'll do that. Yes. Um, but it was, you know, it was sports. And then I tried my best to, to stay on the baseball side of things and, and be in the baseball world. And the same thing it kind of took me toward MLB network and, um, you know, all of the experiences and all the people that I worked with along the way, uh, you know, all my internships, folks, I still stay in touch with, or MLB network ESPN, um, have all prepared me for this, this role, this job, um, that I'm again, fortunate to, to have, but it was always the goal. Cause it, I think it was just uh, it was there's like a little a, a corny romance about the whole thing, you know, like uh, like I said, I, I'll never hit a walk off home run. But if I could um, help to make a memory or um, enhance a memory of the actual athlete who's doing the physical activity uh, and enhance that memory for for someone else, then that that means a lot to me. Well, it's like they say, how could you not be romantic about baseball, right? I mean, that's that's the whole thing right there. And and to me, 
uh, I could I could sort of dork out about all of this stuff and get into a little bit of the nitty gritty with you. So I'm just going to bother you pregame sometime and move sure. on so that everybody else can can hear what they want to hear here, uh, which You're is now six hours. We're not doing six hours. Uh, trust me, that's how it could go or probably would go. Uh, let's talk Marlins baseball, huh? Let's okay, let's talk sure. about. Yeah, I guess sure. let's get to this team. Um, look, <laughs> the, the Miami Marlins, I'm stoked for this season. I can't wait to get started uh, opening day as people are listening to this. It, it's an exciting time around Marlins baseball. And they made some big acquisitions this offseason that really sort of reshaped the way that the roster looked like. So the way we're going to do this is I'm going to go sort of chronologically through some of their key additions on offense and use that as a means to sort of talk about some groups here. And we can get into to some of what Marlins baseball will look like. So as we do that, um, let's start with the very first acquisition that, that was made on the offensive side of the ball, which actually may have been a better defensive acquisition. It was the gold glove catcher, Jacob Stallings. And first of all, let me say, I'm, I'm actually very happy for Jorge Alfaro, who landed on his feet out in San Diego and made the opening day exactly. roster out there, yeah. which is, let's just say, like, let's get that out of the way. Super exciting for him, and I, I'm, I'm happy for him. He's a good dude. Um, yeah. But that said, Jacob Stallings is a major, major upgrade from the defensive side at the very least. And so could you... Take me through the type of impact that an upgrade at the catching position defensively can have on a team like this with a young, talented staff like the Marlins as pitchers. Absolutely. I think that that was um, it was a, it was not just a box on the checklist, but it was a big box on the checklist. And it, it goes exactly to what you say from a from a general sense. Um, you want good defense behind the plate. Every we see it now. Every ninety feet is so important. So the the pass balls or the you know um, not being able to hold a runner or call a game, all those extra little things, um, especially in in years past where the Marlins were a little bit less dependent on their offense, right, or didn't have the offense to go around. Right. You know, every ninety feet or every run was was made greater, right? So. Mm-hmm. In order to shore that up, and we hear it all the time, it's the old cliche, baseball teams have to be strong up the middle. And where does it start? It starts with a catcher. So in order to uh, to, to get a guy like Jacob Stallings, I think was huge. That's the general thought. But the specific thought, as you brought up, and it's a great point, is that the backbone of this franchise for the last five years has been their pitching. And we're starting to see that come to fruition now. I mean, Sandy, um, I was asked on another podcast last week, make a bold prediction. My bold prediction is as great as the pitchers are in the National Leagues that Sandy Alcantara finished top three in the Cy Young vote. That's how good he is. It's a great um, prediction. Yeah, yeah, right. And maybe it's not that bold. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, but, um, but you know, so so you've seen him take that next step over these last couple of seasons. Pablo Lopez has done the same thing. But now we're going into year two of a of a Trevor Rogers. Um, you know, year two certainly in this uniform for Jesus Luzardo as well. Uh, you know, we've seen flashes from Eliezer Hernandez, and that's that's just like the starting five, if you will. Right. That's not even that next layer of guys that will undoubtedly over the course of one sixty two get opportunities. Mm-hmm. So. It, it, for the same reason you don't often see catchers traded at the deadline because in, ingratiating themselves into a pitching staff is very difficult with a month and a half to go in the season before a playoff run. Um, because they're that important, it's it's the flip side when it gets done in the offseason because now he can do that. Um, and if is he going to be Mike Piazza behind home plate? Maybe not, but he's not asked to be that. You know, right. it's it's, it's – it's this classic stay in your lane type thing. Like they're, yeah. they're they may not be looking for for the 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 huge offense thirty home run catcher, but they're looking for somebody who's going to be a defensive stalwart behind home plate, who is going to put the pitchers first. And if you put the pitchers first, and that's what everybody outside wants to talk about with this club, that the pitching is is number one, and why this team can surprise people. Um, he's just an extension of the pitching staff, which is a strength. Yeah, it's certainly great to be able to add someone with that sort of um, pedigree back there, right? Like, like given awards for knowing that guy is is great behind the plate. It's nice to just know, all right, right off the bat, that's not really something that you have to worry about. And to not have question marks at that position where you know someone can step in there just about every single day and be steady for you is something that that's really key in, in particular with those young pitchers having that level of consistency too, right? I mean, how many times last year did we see from start to start to start 
it was a different catcher, a different catcher, a different catcher for some of these young guys. And God, to be able to have now the consistency there too is just another added bonus for some of these young pitchers as they get more and more acclimated. I want to give some love to Mel Stoudemire Jr. too. I mean, you talk about extensions of pitching staffs, right? Like there's no better extension of the pitching staff than the coach himself. So in order to get that you know, that that message from Mel to Sandy or Pablo or Trevor on the hill, that that avenue runs right through the catcher. And mm-hmm. and when it all works together, right, when when Jacob Stallings is an extension of the pitching staff, but also an extension of the pitching coach, mm. everything's just there's just much more continuity there. I can't wait to see the way that, that those two in particular and Stallings and Sotomayor work together because they are two of the best at what it is that they do. And so that it'll be wonderful to see them sort of help coddle this incredible talent that exists on the mound. Uh, the, the next move for the Marlins was a trade for a 2021 All-Star. That's Joey Wendell, uh, Joey Forearms, as, as we all like to call him. Uh, and it gives us a chance to sort of talk about the infield here, right? You've got Cooper and Aguilar as the first baseman in the DH um, in whichever order that ultimately ends up being day to day. Jazz stapled in as the second baseman, Miguel Rojas at shortstop, and Joey Wendell and Brian Anderson theoretically splitting time at third. All of those guys are relatively versatile. Jazz, Miggy, Joey Wendell, Brian Anderson can all play multiple positions. Um, But you also have John Birdie as sort of the true utility guy behind all of that as well. So I guess this, this sort of allows you to go wherever you want. But the first question that I have is, of this group, who is poised to have the biggest year offensively? So of the six guys that I just sort of named, of the two first basemen, the three starting infielders, or I guess seven, platooning with Brian Anderson, and and I'll throw John Birdie in there if you want to surprise <laughs> us, uh, which of these guys is going to have the biggest offensive season? Oh, man, I, that's, a, that's a good question because I think that, um, you know, there, there's a couple of guys that kind of stand out in terms of, um, I think that they can all be extremely uh, good and productive. Let me get yes. that out of the way first. But I think two guys who who probably have a little something uh, to prove, and that may not be the best way to phrase it, but coming off an injury for Brian Anderson, I'll start there, mm-hmm. right? Like, so BA had the shoulder issues multiple mm-hmm. last year. So he's back. He had a, you know, a, a, a full off season as it were to recoup and recover and everything else. Um, you know, we, we've seen what he can be for this team. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think that some of the additions to the club, the Solaires and the Garcias, um, will help to lengthen the lineup and allow mm-hmm. BA to be a better version of BA. You know, he doesn't necessarily have to be that middle of the order Bryce Harper, 40 home run type guy to help carry the offense. Yes. Um, he can be that, that maybe average uh, batting average leader uh, right. and batting average type, not, you know, middle of the road average, but batting average type um, guy and and just pepper the gaps, you know, mm-hmm. and we've seen him. I mean, he was a, a gold glove finalist a couple of years ago at third base. We've seen him if he had played a full season in right field a few years ago, maybe could have been a, a gold outfielder. glove outfielder too. So I think it, it, it could offer him the opportunity to be a better version of himself taking a little bit off his plate and just, you know, a little bit of a deep breath and go out there and prove that, that he is still a cornerstone guy in this, uh, in this lineup, which I believe Mm. he is. And the other guy uh, would be, would be jazz. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it was what a couple of home runs shy of 2020, which, which is rare for the Marlins. Um, There haven't been any, I don't have the note in front of me. I think it's 15 and 15. There was only one other 15 home or 15 steal rookie for the Marlins. And that was Hanley Ramirez. Um, so jazz was that guy. So I think he's, he's, he's poised, uh, for a little, uh, unfinished business, if you will, to join that, that rare 2020 club, uh, that's, that's worn a Marlins uniform. And we see how dynamic this guy is. I mean, first of all, he's a marketer's dream. There's no doubt for about that. For real. Um, he asked me to do blue hair with him. I said, uh, buddy, I can't really help you with it. I'll wear a blue tie. If you want, I got to do a blue tie. Yeah. But, um, but I, th- I think that uh, that those guys might be, um, you know, two two guys that kind of jump out to me. And I think I honestly, too, and I haven't spoken to Jazz about this yet, but I want to because I don't want to speculate on it. But, you know, there there were some uh, there were parts of his game last year defensively or strikeouts or whatever that that he's kind of mentioned. And, and I haven't gotten a quote from him directly. And I, I want to do that still. Um 
But, you know, where's his mindset at? Because I think that that all great athletes or, or whoever, they always use a little motivation of proving people wrong. And there's probably been enough folks out there that have said, oh, he can't do this. He can't do that. He's seventh best at this or what. Jazz doesn't think that way. And that's what you've got to love about the kid is that he's he's incredibly driven. Um, he's uh, going to get an opportunity now to shut some people up who think that maybe he's just about the blue hair or just about the chains. We've seen it a thousand times. He's got a very rare ability, abilities mm. of power and speed. And that dynamic is uh, it's it's electrifying. And to be able to see that every day and then put that together. Um, I, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, listen, it, it, how jazz goes maybe is how this team goes too, right? To, yep. to some degree, hopefully for the for the good, right? So if he can put this team on his back, which he's done a number of times, um, again, they they can prove a lot of those uh, those pundits wrong, those national pundits wrong. It's always nice to have one of like those dudes who you yeah. know on any given night can just take over a game which is not an easy thing to do in major league baseball right but the type of impact that he can have in a number of different ways even if he's not hitting for power for a certain stretch he's got that speed and vice versa right so the idea that that you can have that type of person contribute and, and the comment that you made about brian anderson and and you know he sort of works with the next group that we'll talk about in the outfielders is that BA is going to sort of, it seems like, be used in a very versatile way where where the plan will be to sort of plug and play him in a number of different spaces. And I think that, like, the thing that you're getting to the root of is there's 11 or 12 legitimately, like, good Major League Baseball players on this roster to start the season, right? Of, of, of hitters on this team who can all play on any given night and you're not going to go, oh, man, five through nine is... Ugh. Right. You know, and and there look, let's just be realistic. There were moments throughout, especially at the tail end of last year, after a couple of players had been traded away where there were nights where there were some guys who were in the lineup who were struggling enough to where under different circumstances, maybe they wouldn't be. And so now where you have that type of depth with these additions to where. Brian Anderson can bat a little lower in the order and the pressure isn't to hit 30 homers. It's go be the best version of yourself. And I think yeah. that that's like that's the biggest thing that this team can do now is Jazz may not even be right there at the top of the order as everybody would anticipate. He could be at the very bottom of the order, but part of that could still be driving the offense. So that's some of the exciting stuff that exists. And, and let's get to it when it comes to the additions of Aviseo Garcia and Jorge Soler. What type of impact bats are those two players? Like, can you put that in perspective for the Marlin, the casual baseball fan who's just right. showing up now for opening day? Can you put into perspective the caliber of hitters that Jorge Soler and Avisael Garcia are added to this team? Well, I'll tell you something. One of the uh, the many, and I, I won't verbalize them, but there are some negatives that usually get mentioned around with the Marlins, right? And one of them is usually, oh, the ballpark's too big. There's no power. Not for those guys. Let me yeah. tell you, yeah, this, this ballpark ain't too small for those guys. Um, yeah. It is, uh, and, and they are, yeah, I, I do think that there's a little something to you know, walking into the ballpark and feeling like the varsity's here, mm. you know, and, and we, I, we've seen that when other around other clubs, right? Like the Braves walk into town and they start for stretch and well, there's Freddie Freeman and there's Dansby Swanson and there's Ronald Acuna Jr. And there's Ozzie Albies, uh, the Dodgers. There's everybody, right. You everybody know, like, ever. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. right. Like, Oh my goodness. It's fantastic. every good player of the last decade. Yeah. They, yeah they exactly. Are. They're all right there. So, yeah. but it's like, you look over there and you're like, Oh man, wow. Like that, that, that looks like a big league ball club right now. Like we're in for a fight tonight. And, um, and now you, you're really starting to see that. And I listen, uh, physical stature and actual numbers are two different things, but there is going to be something to watching these guys who look like they could be playing for the dolphins and not just the Marlins. They <laughs> walk out there and be like, okay, we, we're, we're going to, we're going to have a fight on our hands tonight. And listen, they, these are guys who've been all-stars world series MVPs yep. in the big moments, um, you know, called upon to be the guy in a lineup. Um, they've, they've been there and, uh, and for both of them, they're, they're playing at home too. So there's also that other little level of hometown pride here. I know that they're not both necessarily born and raised in Miami, but they, sure. they, they both have had homes in Miami for quite some time. So, um, there's that element too. Um, 
and I, I again, I just think that there's 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 the visual threat of when they walk in. And maybe that's just me not having been like a, a major league competitor before to be like, you know, I'll ask, hey, man, what's it like facing? <laughs> and they're like, I don't care. Like right. I've faced them. Look at I've faced them 37 times. Like, right. it's, but so maybe it's less than I'm making it out to be. But um, but but that, you know, though the, you, you've you've as you mentioned before, you've got legit big league hitters now and uh and again in this ballpark um you throw aguilar in the mix too yeah. uh in terms of garrett cooper garrett cooper too and solaire and uh and garcia that you don't worry where the fences are with those guys in nope. this ballpark and that i listen again i've never been in that box in the bottom of the ninth inning trying to get home the winning run so i'm not the the authority figure on on speaking on that but there's got to be something to not feeling like the ballpark is is breathing down on you anymore and that you mm-hmm. can do whatever you need to do offensively because these are accomplished hitters. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm excited. I mean, it makes my yeah. job easy. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Well, and in terms of, I mean, in terms of pure pop, another guy who's in there who we haven't been able to get to just through the angles of this conversation is Jesus Sanchez, another guy yeah. who's going to be your opening day center fielder more likely than not. It, it, there's so much now. Like, truly, there's... I guess six or arguably seven guys, six guys who I go, yeah, I don't really worry about the size of the ballpark for them. And when it comes to their power and that's, that's certainly different from where things have been at different moments throughout the last number of years. Even when the Marlins were making their playoff run, that was more through, it felt like at least, small ball and executing that way. You know, because Starling Marte, who was their best player at the time, was not this overwhelming power hitter, right? So now to know that those sort of, uh, sort of cornerstones are in your lineup who at any given moment can hit a big home run for you. Meanwhile, also, there are guys in your lineup who contribute in other ways. It's it's exciting to... to I'm stoked to, to get a chance to now watch this lineup perform in, in big league games, and I'm excited to see the way Donnie makes up the lineup because I, I was really enjoying seeing Jorge Soler up there at the top of the order, and I think right. that would be something that's, that's really beneficial. Um, yeah. Going back real briefly, um, and, and we're going to wrap up in the next couple of minutes, so going back real quickly... To that rotation, you mentioned everybody and how great they are. I'm actually, and it sounds, based off the way you brought them up, it sounds like you're, I won't say as bullish as me on Jesus Lazardo having a really good bounce back season, but I'm really excited about seeing what he can do a second season in a Marlins uniform. But really the question is, just how good is this rotation? Like, where if you think Sandy Alcantara is going to be a top three Cy Young candidate, where does this rotation rank in all of Major League Baseball in your mind? Are they right there near the top? I, for me, they are, you know, there's probably a, a certain bias there just because I see them every night. Um, but yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, when they when they are at their best, the mm-hmm. top three, um, they don't have the hardware. I mean, we'll, obviously, we'll, we'll be frank with that. They don't have the hardware of, let's say, a Scherzer and a DeGrom who have uh, like 37 Cy Young. <laughs> right, um, right, right. You know, or, or, or the Kershaw and Mueller types in L.A., right? So they, they may not have that hardware, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the ability. Um, and, I, and I think that, as I mentioned before, I, I do it maybe to a fault on the broadcast I, I give Mel so much credit. You yep. know, uh, I think that he's been a, a just a, such a mentor for these guys. They have the God-given ability. They, don't get me wrong, but but to have someone help you unlock it more or find that next level, yep. I can't think of a better guy than Mel Stoudemire Jr. So I mean, we've seen it again. Forgive me, I've said this a thousand times on on the broadcast, but I remember uh, in two thousand and uh, and seventeen when Sandy would pitch. And it was, you know, Sarah, 18, I think it was yeah, 18. I wasn't around in 2017, 2018. Uh, my bad. Um, 2018, you know, that first part of the season, Sandy would come up and it was like every fifth day, the, the message from Donnie was, he, we know he's good. We know he can be great, but we, we haven't seen that fire yet. Yep. And there was a start against the Mets in August of that year. I and remember were, yep. the two innings, the first two innings, were like what we had seen the last 12 starts. It was just like ho-hum, not great, not terrible. And he came out for the third inning. And like, you know, you asked me about my life and was there a moment and I can't really think of That was the moment that Sandy became Sandy, mm. you know, when he's only gotten better since that moment. Um, you know, there, there, there's been a change in Pablo who is, 
you know, uh, like, like the cerebral assassin out there, like he's smarter than I'll ever be, obviously. And he uses all of that to his advantage because he's a, it just seems like he's a step ahead of everybody else. And, and he's so mentally mature that, um, you know, you know, he can he can handle himself out there from a mental standpoint now. And these guys have matured. So it'll, it'll be with those two at the forefront health. No doubt. We need that from those guys. No question. Um, but Trevor now second year, what's the workload going to be like? What's the adjustment from the league going to be like? That will that will be something that we that we watch um, and all star last year. I'd love to see him grow on that. And for for Luzardo. Um, yeah, I mean, the guy could be nasty. He was yep. a top pitching prospect just a couple of years ago. He didn't forget how to pitch. You know, I mean, we've seen with other with other guys, Marlins or otherwise, you know, they might have four pitches, but they go to a new team or, or the one year to the next and the usage just changes. Their fastball may not have gotten better. Their slider may not have gotten better, but the way that they utilize those tools just makes them a different pitcher. And that's mm-hmm. what Mel has been so good with getting these guys to unlock that side of it. Um, and now, even though the off season was a little funky because they couldn't have uh, the communication, but, uh, but, a, but a spring, um, whatever phone calls they've had prior to the lockout and after all of that stuff and, and everything that Mel said about Jesus has been positive. So I'm excited because again, um, I don't, again, underdog may not be the word, but there's probably a lot of people who are like, well, I know Lazaro. I saw his numbers last year. How good can he be? There's doubt there. And I love when competitors take doubt um, and and flip it around and shut everybody up. Oh, I love it. It would be amazing. I Just two quick things, and then we're going to let you get off the, the hook here because I know you got to get going. The on, on the pitching side, first of all, and I've mentioned this before elsewhere, but I'm going to mention it here with you uh, and just to everybody again, that Jesus Lazardo ended my high school baseball career when he was a freshman and I was a senior. He was pitching for the other team. Oh, this freshman will be fine. We were not fine. He was amazing. Uh, the, the second part of it is, and this is going to be great analysis, it's I want to say third hand. It's from my dad reading me an excerpt from a book, which was about a quote from Greg Maddox. But essentially, it's true. It's got to be true. So it's true. But essentially, (laughs) essentially, the premise of it was Greg Maddox said that he didn't throw pitches. He threw confidence. So the entire premise was if I was confident that I could hit my spot, if I was confident that, that I was executing the right way. If I felt like I was in a groove, then I was good. It didn't matter how hard I was throwing anything else. And there's so many pitchers who basically have to reach that point of understanding, no, I'm just throwing confidence. My stuff, forget it. It's good enough. I know it now. Now it's, am I confidently pitching? And I think that moment you mentioned with Sandy felt like that moment because the whole thing from Donnie beforehand had been, he's got to be more aggressive. He's got to trust his stuff. He's got to be more aggressive. And now that level of confidence being the ace, it's so exciting to see him start on opening day. I can't wait. Um, and so I guess since we're, we're at time next time, I'll have to uh, give you my pitch on why extra inning runner on second should be an extra inning runner on first. We'll get into that. Uh, at another time, um, but you're into you're into some sort of gimmicky thing. In, I mean, in I'm not I'm not I'm not into it as a general concept. I'd rather it not exist. But if it has to exist, it should be a runner on first. We can get into it later. We'll get into it later. I'll explain why it's a teaser for the next time Paul Severino is on here. For everyone who wants to watch Paul and the Miami Marlins, you can tune in for opening day on Bally Sports Florida. First pitch is at 4:35 Eastern time out in San Francisco. Uh, every game there forward will be with Paul. And we didn't even get into the rotating crew of color commentators. We'll also be have have to be something that we get into the next time you're on here and how that's going. So, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time and have a great opening day. I will do my best. Thank you so much and uh, continue to do great work, my friend. Great stuff. Thank you. And thanks to Paul Severino for taking the time to join the show. I am now... Switching lanes, we're going toward Miami Heat basketball, and I'm joined by a Heat legend in Tony Fiorentino for the third time on the show. I think, Coach Tony, that might be a new record for appearances for us. I think you're right up there at the top, so happy to have you back. Hopefully third and counting. Yes, third and counting, that's for sure. Well, And, and it'll only be only be counting more as the Heat go deeper and deeper into the playoffs, hopefully. So let's let's hope this is uh, and counting that goes deep I'll into see the you summer. In June. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So um, excited to have you here, Coach. And, um, you know, we're just going to be able to dive into a little bit of bit what's been going on with the Heat as of late as this season is winding down. For, for the folks listening here, it'll be on uh, Friday morning. 
The Heat play the Hawks tonight and could have, depending on the results of the games on Thursday night, already clinched the one seed in the Eastern Conference. With Thursday night losses by the Celtics and the Sixers, the Heat could clinch that one seed, but if not, have an opportunity to clinch against the Atlanta Hawks. And before we get into anything specific, I do want to add a little bit more context. Remember, the Heat had that four-game losing streak. Everybody was running around, chicken little, you know, sky is falling. Um, And since then, the Heat have responded with a five-game win streak, which ties their longest streak of the season. And with a win against the Hawks, would become their longest win streak of the season. It's really been an amazing uh, bounce back for the Miami Heat. What do you think, whether that be a player or a coaching decision, has been the biggest factor in the Heat's recent stretch of wins? Well, there's more than one factor. And I think uh, mostly people who reacted um, negatively to the the debate, whatever you want to call it, that the Heat had, you know, a little argument, okay? That thing goes on all, stuff like that goes on all the time. Usually it's behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And when you, you know, like you think of a family where sometimes they argue with each other. That's really what it was. And it it, it, sometimes it can be a positive because there are things on the, you know, just just below the surface, maybe that some people are irked about because you're in close, you know, you're competing, you got a lot of alpha dogs, you know, a lot, a lot of alphas on that team and things are going to happen. And so it was good that it happened because my whole point was when people were asking me about it is don't look at what happened. Let's look at what happens after. Let's look and see how they handle it. And the Heat are a tight knit group. They're very well coached. You know, there's, there's, there's um, leadership from Mickey and Nick Harrison through Pat Riley through all the way down to the ball boys. They all know they're all on the same page. And so something like that can turn into a positive, and it did, mm-hmm. because they got out some of the things that needed to be said. They, they, they resolved their issues behind closed doors. And that, and combined with the fact that I think what, what Coach Bolster was doing, he was trying to um, acclimate certain players into the rotation to Correct. see if he could use them in the playoffs. And you just can't throw them into the, a tough situation unless they've been playing with the other guys on a, you know, on a semi-regular basis. So if you put all that together and you can see why uh, the team, and they're a very good road team, one of the best in the NBA. He had one of the best road records in the NBA. They're in the top five or six or something like that the last time I looked. And so when they went into um, Chicago uh, to, to play them there, um, you know, it, you just knew, well, they went to Boston first. They were 0-2 against Boston. And they won that going away, you know, mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter. Then they go to Chicago, a team they were 3-0 and against, a team that most people picked was going to come out ahead of Miami at the end of the season. A lot of pseudo-experts, as I call them. They, the Heat took care of business that night and then did the same on Sunday night with some players out at Toronto and, and with their coach not there. And so this is a team we've seen all year long. They're resilient. Yep. They respond to pressure. They're the, the, the one criticism of this Heat team when the season started was that the, the, the people didn't think they had any depth. Hmm. And look what happens. Right. They may have, they're up there with maybe one or two or three best teams in the league with depth off the bench. Absolutely. And so you combine all of those factors and the fact that good teams, when they have adversity, respond both, you know, in losses and maybe in argument, whatever it is. They did. And now they're on a five-game lead. They lost after that that night, they, they lost the next game. And then they came back and won five in a row. And so that's who they really are. And they're really prepping now for the playoffs. They're starting to play well for the playoffs. And so that yeah, that's what it's all about. I think a great point that you made in there too was that within all of that sort of uh upheaval of that four-game losing streak. It was in part because Coach Spo was now trying some new things with a team that, as crazy as this is for a first place team, was truly healthy for the first time this season in terms of having every option available to them. And so the idea that, yeah, of course there's going to be a little discomfort. The rotation starts to feel a little claustrophobic. And so some of those spats are going to happen. And that might not have been what was at the root of whatever, you know, a spat, I'll continue to use that word, was going on there between Coach Spo and Jimmy Butler. But but 
Tony, you've experienced plenty of that with the Heat organization. Those types of things have been going on either behind the scenes or sort of in front of the scenes uh, for a long time with the competitive nature of these guys. This wasn't a question I had prepared, but was there, when you saw that happen, were there any moments in the Heat past that sort of came back to you specifically of, oh, I remember, you know, Coach Riley's argument with this person or even Coach Spoh's, you know, button heads with this person that it reminded you of? Well, there were some things in the past in practice. It's mainly in practice when guys are competing against each other. There was a lot. Sometimes certain days you had to separate people because of the competitiveness of it. But that's what you want in a practice. You want the way you get better. I was fortunate. I coached in a high school that had I had innate ability type players that had a mold into championship teams. And we were able to do that. But the point is. We had players that competed against guys in practice. They mm. made the first team practice. Very often with good teams, the second team beats the first team in practice because they're so competitive. And they, they don't want to give in to the first team. So they're making the, the, the guys who the rotation guys better by competing against them. But sometimes they bang heads. Sometimes there's, 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 there's physical contact that guys don't like. Sometimes the guys that are in the rotation don't like how hard the guys that are not in it are playing. You know, it's all human nature. Right. So that's what it all that's what all of it is. Ultimately it's just competition it's, it's and it's yeah, healthy. well, it's healthy competition. And and look, it's right there on the front of half of these shirts, right, where it says with the Heat, for competitors only. That's what that's what the organization, you know, prides itself on. And so to see some of that spill over into sort of the, the national public eye, nobody's going to necessarily understand the way that, that everybody ticks within the organization the way that, that you do, you know, Tony. And so uh, I do want to look at one specific adjustment that has been made in 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 this transition from four game losing streak to now five game win streak is the switch of the starting lineup where now Max Struess is in the starting lineup in place of Duncan Robinson. And, you know, I, I, it's been cool to see Duncan sort of respond with good play. He hit seven threes the other night off the bench. But Max Struess has been tremendous in the starting role in this five game win streak. He's averaging 13.4 points per game, shooting 50 percent from three, 18 for 36 from three has been really solid on the defensive end. And I believe the Heat are 13 and two this season when he starts. So what are your thoughts on Max's role with the team in the present moment in place of Duncan Robinson in the starting lineup? And what's your view of his ascension this season? Well, what bodes well for all Heat fans is that Coach Polstra is not afraid to make tough decisions. You see what he did a couple of years ago when we were in the bubble. Uh, started Crowder. He started uh, Goron. Okay. Well, out of the blue, nobody saw it coming. Yeah. But he knew that was what we needed to do in the bubble. He's, he's very good. He's got the finger on the pulse of what the team needs. Mm-hmm. And he felt at this juncture, five, six games ago, whenever it was, at that juncture, the team was better with Struess coming uh, starting and Duncan coming off the bench. And it's worked because it's worked both ways because uh, uh, Duncan Robinson is a specialist. He's a great shooter. Great shooters are going to have off nights. But you, so you've got to adjust the minutes and the situation to him, okay? Uh, Struess seems to be more on a... Um, Gives you more of a level type game where, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be a 30 point game. It's not going to be a five point game. Somewhere in the middle, he's going to give you tough defense. He's going to be a little stronger on the boards, a little bit better defensively. All right. Can handle the ball a little better. And so he, Coach Bolster felt that maybe he needed that particular, those particular skills in the starting lineup with that unit. And by doing that, also, what he did was he decided. Along with that, I don't know if it coincided, but it's happening now, is to get Jimmy Butler out of the game sooner, Yep. get Tyler Hero in the game quicker, right? Same thing sooner for him, and give Jimmy Butler an early rest, and it seems to work. Now, how do you know? How do you get that? Well, that's why you're the coach. You're the coach. Gets He's with those players every day. You get a little amused sometimes, and it's kind of sad, too, when some people in the media say the team should do this, 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 and this. They don't see the guys every day in practice. They don't have no, they have no idea. They're just guessing. Coach Spolstra and his team, they don't guess. <laughs> you know, Pat, Pat Riley's at every home practice, right? Right. And so he's got, you know, he, he's got, uh, uh, um, uh, Coach Spolstra's got the concierge right there. <laughs> okay. 
you know, if he has to ask him questions, get his opinion, who, right. who better to ask? Right, you know, right. So the whole thing works. And there's, I, I, when I used to do a radio show, guys used to call him, why don't the Keith think about doing this, this, or that? And I said, look, anything that's worth discussing, they've discussed it 10 times, 20 times already. Right. I was there. <laughs> when, when, you're with your, when you're with the other coaches and you're in the office or you're on a plane or you're in a hotel, what do you think they're doing? They're right. discussing things that make the team better. And so there isn't anything you can suggest. There isn't anything anybody can suggest that's going to make them better. Okay. They're, they're going to figure it out themselves. In some ways, they're doing their own sports talk radio, right? They're sitting there going, hey, here's the lineup. Here's the lineup. What would you yeah, do? What would you do? Deal, but that's actually informed, deal. right? You know, they're coming at it from their informed perspective. But it's sure. hilarious to think that they're, you know, sitting there talking about these things, too. Of course they are. And, and a guy you brought up on, on your own in, in that uh, rotation there is Tyler Hero, who has been just remarkable this entire season, but especially as of late in the game that the Heat just played, where, by the way, they set a regular uh, regulation record, 144 points in the game against Charlotte. Tyler Hero dropped 35. That ties a regular season career high. He now has 20 games this season of 25 points or more off the bench. That's the most in the NBA since the 1990-91 season. So now that this season is sort of winding to a close, we all anticipate Tyler winning a six-man-of-the-year award, but can you explain the type of impact player Tyler is headed into this postseason, and, and what do you believe his future looks like now that we've seen another full year of, of this spectacular basketball player? Well, the luxury that Coach Spo has is that if the team gets off to a slow start and they seem to be struggling, every team goes through lulls. Mm. In, in games every team does that okay not every game but most uh, some game you know there's a good good margin again there, there are games when you ha- that happens sure and the heat tend to do that whenever whenever tyler hero's there to help abate that if you start out slowly and he comes in with five six minutes left in the first half he picks up the pace yep the other team has to concentrate on him if you watch the heat play for the first time the other night and you didn't know anything about anybody and you saw Tyler play, you would say, why is he taking no shots? <laughs> then they go in. Okay, he's been doing that all year. It's amazing. Right? There's been no lull in the whole thing. He's had, he's had off nights, mm-hmm. you know, like anybody else. But get add one more stat to what you have. I think Tyler has had eight 30-plus scoring games this year off the bench. The rest of the league combined has six. 29 mm. other teams, six times as it happened where a player came off the bench and scored 30 or more. Tyler's mm. done eight by himself. Right. It's amazing. More than the other 29 teams combined. Amazing. Okay, so that in a nutshell tells you what kind of scoring year he's had, yep. right? Um, I think if you want to look at, if you want to be the devil's advocate, or if you want to be the, the um, to throw one wrench in the whole thing, I think he's got to get a little better with the ball late in the game with full court pressure. He seems to get a little bit out of, out of his realm a little bit. He's gotten better. He's got to still improve. But, I mean, you're, you're talking about one little thing, one thing where there's 19 positives. Right, you know? right. And, I, I'm, and I'm sure he knows that. I'm not saying, and I know the coach, and I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know. No. So they're going to work on that. But look at the great improvement he made from year two. You know, his year two wasn't that bad. Everybody makes it like he had a bad year. Right. He, had, he didn't have a good playoffs. The mm-hmm. four games against Milwaukee, he did not play well. But he had an average over 15 a game. Yep. Okay? He he didn't have a bad year his second year in the league. He had no offseason to prepare. It went right in from one season to the next, right? And you can see what happened when he had the offseason to go in the weight room, all right, uh, with Eric Ferran, the strength coach, and to work on his game on the court with the coaches, put on the 10 pounds of muscle and strength, and look what he added to his game. He's, he's a better ball handler now. He, he's, uh, he can make get his own shot. And I'll tell you the one thing that he's really, really improved on. The one area, he is making great decisions when he takes the ball to the hoop. He's recognizing who's open and he's getting them, getting them the ball. The decisions he's making between shooting and passing the ball 
night and day from last year. It could. That's the to me the most obvious difference, right? Because you would pick up on on more so than I would an improvement in footwork, an improvement in form, certain things that that your eye could discern that I I probably couldn't. But as someone who is an avid basketball watcher, who is maybe not a basketball expert, when I watch Tyler Hero play, the biggest thing that has been the difference is that decision making, where it's obvious when he's driving to the hoop, he has a purpose and he's making the right decision feels like 99 times out of 100 and that's been huge for the heat having another player besides just Jimmy Butler that can legitimately drive to the hoop and create things for other people so it's it's been amazing to see his sort of ascension here as well so this heat team has now won 50 plus games they've won 52 games so far at the time of this conversation and Tony, you've been here for every single season of Miami Heat basketball. I actually asked Eric Reed this question last week. Where does this season rank in the pantheon of great Heat seasons for you? Where does this season, in terms of enjoyment watching this team, where does this team rank amongst some of those great teams in Heat history to watch? And I know there's a lot more that needs to be done before we can look on them with too many rose-colored glasses. They need to get further in the postseason. But how enjoyable has this season been for you to watch? Well, no doubt. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the team that won 61 games because that yeah. team with, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, 96, 97, second year with Pat Riley here, we won 61 games. I was on the staff. And um, it reminds me of that because that team didn't win 30 games at home. They won 29. They won 32 games on the road. Right, the Road Warriors, right. Eric Eric Reed called them the Road Warriors. So this team reminds me a little bit of that team Mm -hmm. where where it it doesn't matter home or away. They don't care where the game is. Mm -hmm. They're not intimidated by it. I mean, they, even though they came and yoked us at home, (laughs) right. Phoenix by 24 points in Phoenix. Yep. You know, making 18 threes. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, that's not going to happen every night, but they were capable of doing that. And they did it. So this team reminds me of the team that won 61 games. I don't know where it, you know, I can't. Yeah, no, you it, don't have to put it specifically in the spot. But it's, it was been a, such a fun season to watch them play because the, they're ex- exhibiting to this year what they did two years ago in the bubble. The mental approach to the game to me is it, it starts with the coaches where they, they, you know, the team reflects the coaches mm-hmm. attitude and the Absolutely. coaches belief. All right. People don't realize how intense coach Bolster is. He looks calm and calm and cool on the sideline. That man just absolutely hates to lose. And they know that I told the story, I think last time when yeah. we played the Celtics, who we were down three, two in the series in 13, they have to win in the first two. They win the next three. We got to go to Boston. And we didn't go. The announcers didn't go because it was a national game, one game trip. We watched it on TV like everybody else. I texted Spo and I said, good luck tomorrow night. They were getting on the plane to go to Boston. He texted me back. There's no freaking way we're losing tomorrow night. There's no freaking way we're losing tomorrow night. Now, you don't think that filters into the team. He had no fear. And we weren't playing well in Boston at that time. Right. We having a hard time winning in Boston. And they had three or four Hall of Famers on the team. Okay, Ray Allen was on that team. It's amazing. Right? And we go on. That was the game when LeBron. Of course, had 45, yeah. 45 and 15. Yep. Eyes, right? yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Like the coach. And that's uh-huh. what this team is all about. When they hit adversity, they come back and play well the next game. And what, I, what, I, what, what I'm looking forward to seeing, the, uh, Pat, uh, Eric Spolster has a lot of characteristics of a Pat Riley as a coach. Mm. He does. And, you know, I was on, I was on his staff and I was, I'm a close to Spo, right? right. The, so I, I, I can see this, but the one thing that I really, that really, that, that, that heat fans are going to like is the fact that after Sunday night's game, the heat has a whole week, five, six days to prepare for the playoffs. Now they may not know who the opponent is till the end of the week. Got the playing games still, whenever Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley, when he coached had three, four, five days to prepare for a team, Watch out. Ultimately, everybody is rooting, I would imagine, for the same thing, which is in this play-in game, let's hope the Heat end up with anybody but those Brooklyn Nets. I think everybody, uh, every Heat fan would probably rather see Charlotte, Atlanta, or uh, Cleveland in that first first matchup uh, of the postseason. And so when you look at the matchup between the Heat and a potential Brooklyn Nets squad with 
Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. What makes you believe that the Heat, obviously, like, the belief that the Heat can win that series is they're the one seed and the Nets would be the eighth seed. But more the premise of why do you believe specifically the Heat match up well and can shut down those Brooklyn Nets? Well, I don't know if you're going to shut them down, but you're going to, you, you know, the, the, the strategy going in is that you want to limit the two great players, yep. you know, Kyrie Irving and KD. You, got, you, you don't want them to dominate the game four times that they can beat you. Uh, but there was a good indication the other night. I don't remember who they played, but KD had 55, and they lost. Mm-hmm. He scored 55, and they lost. Okay? But maybe Milwaukee are one of those teams that were very good, right? But they lost. Yeah. So just, just, so just those two guys going off doesn't mean they're going to beat you. Mm-hmm. And Coach Spolstra and his staff are very good at devising a defensive game plan. Okay? The other part of the equation is, they got to stop you at the other end. Yep, correct. All right? They got to stop you at the other end. And one of the advantages I always had as a high school coach, most, most of the years I coach in high school, the same advantage that Coach Spolstra has. When he goes to his bench and he puts four guys off the bench in the game with one starter, what does the opposing coach do? You can't play KD and Kyrie Irving 48 minutes right. each. You can't do that. So when, he, when they have to go to the bench, do, does he play his starters longer? Right. And if he does, what is what does the opposing coach do when you bring your starters back? You see, so it creates a real dilemma. Plus, the team that the Heat has to play is probably, if the Heat are the first seed, the team the Heat's going to play is going to have to play win two games to get in. Or, or at least play in two games, right? It's either going to be a team that loses the 7-8 game and then wins the right. second game, or win, a team yeah. that wins twice. So they're right. going to have played a couple of games already, and and yeah, who knows what that leads to? So that's, that's a good point. And they're only going to have a game with a day or two to prepare. Okay, so if, if the Heat open next Saturday, for example, you know, a week from Saturday, well, the other the, the, the playing games maybe go to Thursday night. Yep. Whoever wins Thursday night may have to fly to Miami and get there on Friday to prepare for Saturday's game. So there's an advantage there, obviously, with being the top seed. Yep. So. We'll see what happens. I can't wait. I know uh, this is going to be a fun postseason. And Tony Fiorentino uh, will be along for the ride right here on Miami Miked Up. Um, next week, we have some have some stuff in the works, so hoping to make that happen. But then, Coach, during that first series, I look forward to speaking to you and speaking to you in between one of these games and getting some analysis up on uh, one of the mornings of, of, of one of the games that will follow. So uh, if you guys want to stay uh, in the loop on all of this, follow at Bally Heat. You can follow me at Jeremy Taché, and that's where you'll find all information on Miami Miked Up. Coach Tony Fiorentino, thank you again for joining this episode of Miami Miked Up. You got it, Jeremy. Till the next time, baby. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Bally Sports Florida's Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And a special thank you to our national sponsor in Southeast Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealers or toyota.com today and take advantage of the amazing deals on their full line of vehicles. No matter your destination, Toyota goes with you. Toyota, let's go places. (laughs) 